This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, you have trampled down death by your death, and you give us your life through the Holy Eucharist which you instituted on this night. Come and help us who must endure death, not to be overcome by the fear of it, that we might fear and love you above all things and love one another as you have commanded. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So tonight we're observing Maundy Thursday, the service each year in which we remember and are renewed in our commitment to that new commandment that the Lord gave to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. That commandment was that they love one another. We remember that at the moment of his betrayal by Judas, what Christ was doing was showing the disciples whom he had called and commissioned that he loved them. And he was showing them this very practically by washing their feet. And he told them to go and do likewise. And he did all of this in the context of instituting the meal in which he would promise to be present with them and to feed them with his own precious body and blood. And so this service is very precious to us. Because there is nothing that we do as a church besides our study of the word itself in which we know Jesus more intimately than in our communion with him in the Holy Eucharist and in our mutual service of one another. The act of spiritual communion that we will observe together a little bit later is actually like a sigh of lament for us. We want to be together. We want to be nourished and strengthened by Christ in the Eucharist. But this pandemic makes it impossible to gather. And so spiritual communion is what we do when we are prevented from gathering for communion weekly so that the desire for this sacrament can be increased in us so that when we meet together again after this long season apart is over, we will hunger and thirst to be fed by Jesus in Holy Communion. Now the Maundy Thursday service begins in a kind of celebratory key, but it ends bleakly. The end of the Maundy Thursday service is also the beginning of what in the Christian tradition we call the Triduum, three days. This is a three-day period that runs through Good Friday when we remember Christ's death upon the cross, through Holy Saturday when we remember Christ laid in the tomb in solidarity with all who have ever lived and died. And then culminating in Easter Sunday when we remember together enjoy his resurrection. This is the most solemn time in the entirety of our church calendar. Today, tomorrow, and Holy Saturday are fast days. They are our time to soberly contemplate the sacrifice that Christ has made for us to win us back from the power of sin and death which has enslaved all of us. At the end of this service, after the act of spiritual communion, I will strip the altar. I will extinguish the lights just as for a brief moment the light of the world was himself extinguished. I will remove the linens just as Christ himself was stripped of his clothing, subjected to shame and ridicule upon the cross for our sake. And while I am doing that, Father Jack will be reading Psalm 22, 
which is the psalm that Jesus spoke from the cross. It's a psalm of lament. And we're doing all of this on a night in which New York City is setting aside public land to warehouse the dead because there is no more room in the morgues. It's an eerie time. Relief organizations are establishing field hospitals because the ICU units in New York City are overwhelmed. And the same is true of other hotspots in the United States. We have friends and families and neighbors who are testing positive, who are getting sick, who are dying from this illness. The power of death is bearing down upon us in a way that we cannot distract ourselves from today. We cannot ignore it today. It is front page news today and every day in this season. What this pandemic is making us grapple with is that there is no safe harbor from the power of death in this world. We cannot even leave our houses except for the most urgent of errands because the power of death is so front and center for us as a society and as a culture and as a church. As we turn to our passage from the Gospel of Luke today, in which we read about the Last Supper, before Jesus is betrayed, before he wrestles against his own fear of death at Gethsemane, before he accepts his death on the cross, we see that Luke tells us a really important detail. This meal that Jesus is celebrating is a Passover meal. Now, the annual celebration of the Passover is how the Israelites kept before their minds the stark reality of the power of death and the fact that the Lord God is the one who delivered them from death that was visited upon their oppressors, the Egyptians. He did this as he brought them out of Egypt in a great exodus. By spreading the blood of a slaughtered lamb upon their doorframes, the Israelites were protected from the visitation by the angel of death. And this protection from death was bound up with their deliverance as a people from slavery to the Egyptians. Now why? Why was the lamb slaughtered? Why was the blood spread upon the doorframe? The lamb which was slaughtered in worship was offered as a substitute for the worshiper. Now in the ancient world, the gods of the nations had to be propitiated through sacrifices. They would be fed with the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. And through these rituals, the wrath of the gods would be placated and their disposition would become friendly to the humans that depended upon them. That's actually what the word propitiate means. But the Lord God was not like that. What the Lord desires is communion with his people. And so he commands them to to offer not not the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but themselves, their souls and bodies as living sacrifices for communion with him. But rebellion and sin have taken deep root in the hearts of all people, even his own people, Israel. And so they are unable to do that. To offer themselves as a sacrifice would be to offer an imperfect sacrifice. To do so would be to be unable to stand before the Lord. And so as an act of mercy and of grace, as an act of his covenant faithfulness to his people, he accepts a substitute in place of the people. The lamb must be without defect 
because the sacrifice must mirror what is required by the Lord God of the worshiper. The sacrifice of the lamb and the blood spread upon the lintel and the doorposts is an act of confession, actually. It's an act of confession that the Israelites must come before the presence of the Lord to commune with him. That is what is commanded, but that they could not. To come into the presence of the Lord as a sinner is to be destroyed by the purity of his holiness. And so as Israel celebrates and remembers its deliverance from Egypt, it is also bringing to conscious awareness every year the closeness of death. Because it is not because of Israel's righteousness that the plague on the firstborn passed over them, but because of the mercy and grace of God that was extended to them in providing a substitute. And so at the Passover, Israel was forced each year to reckon with the connection between atonement and deliverance from death. The atonement that is reenacted at Passover each year had three major themes to it. And all of these aspects were captured in the Passover meal. All of them, as we will see in just a few minutes, are also in view of Luke's understanding of what Christ's death accomplishes. Now the first element, and probably the most critical for the New Testament's understanding of atonement, is the theme of God's mighty act of deliverance. Now the point of the plagues that were visited upon Egypt, of which the death of the firstborn is the last and the most terrible, is that each one of those plagues symbolizes a major deity that was worshipped by the Egyptians. And so When the plague is visited upon the Egyptians, it is a humiliation of the gods that Egypt put their trust and their confidence in. In these plagues, the Lord God shows that they are nothing or worse than nothing. They are demonic. These false gods legitimate the cruel regime of the Egyptian pharaohs and keep the Hebrews enslaved. So a crucial aspect of atonement that is recalled during the Passover is God's mighty deliverance of his people from false consciousness, from the belief that these Egyptian gods are anything, that they're powerful, that they're worthy of worship. Only the Lord God is mighty to save. Only the Lord God is characterized by hesed, by the deep compassion and the faithfulness that he bears in his covenant with his people. And so to demonstrate that fact, the Lord God delivers them both into the truth, into the deep reality, the deep structures of reality, and out of material enslavement to the Egyptians. That's the first thing that we remember in the Passover. Secondly, atonement means forgiveness of sins. Now we already said that what the Lord God wants and what the Lord God commands is an offering of ourselves as worshipers. But because what should be offered to God, one's whole self, soul, and body cannot be offered because of sin, God lovingly provides a substitute so that in the priestly act of sacrifice, there can be peace and reconciliation between God and his people. The sins of the people are covered or blotted out through the sacrifice and the worshiper is cleansed through the blood of the sacrifice so that God no longer sees the sin. Although the offering is made by the people in this instance, it is not their offering that makes the sacrifice worthy. That's crucial to understand because this is an act of grace. 
The offering of the lamb doesn't actually change the worshiper so that they're able to commune with God. Rather, it is God counting the sacrifice as worthy out of his great love that makes the sacrifice worthy. So there's this second element, the forgiveness of sins. And then there's this third element, a third aspect of atonement. Atonement means a ransom paid. Throughout the scripture, there's a close connection between sin and death. The way that scripture describes it, there is a kind of obligation or debt that is owed to death because of sin. Or as St. Paul puts it, if your work is sin, there are wages that come due for that work, and that is death. In a world filled with sinners, death is not neutral. Rather, it is transformed into a demonic power or force. It doesn't simply mean the cessation of life. It is a gale force wind that sweeps all before it. It is a plague that infests and lays waste at midday. It is a toxin that permeates unseen and corrupts and destroys everything. It is, as St. Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6, a sovereign that has a universal dominion. Death conquers territory. Nothing and no one escapes death's iron-fisted rule. And so because everyone is consigned to sin, everyone owes the debt, and no one can pay it without dying. Psalm 49 says, Truly no man can ransom himself or his brother or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of his life is costly and can never suffice that he should continue to live on forever and never see the pit. But the psalmist goes on to say, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, that is, death, for he will receive me. Now in the Passover, what is remembered is a provisional salvation from death. The Israelites were rescued from visitation by the angel of death at the moment of their liberation. A ransom has been paid, as it were, but not the full ransom. Everyone knows that death is coming sooner or later, and that has a bleak finality to it. Now as we turn to Luke's gospel, we can see that these three themes are woven together in the Last Supper and in Luke's interpretation of it. Luke has been very clear in his gospel that what the Lord God is accomplishing through Jesus is a new exodus. In Luke's account of the transfiguration, as Jesus' divine identity is revealed, Elijah and Moses appear and they speak with him. And Luke records that what they're talking about is his departure, which is to occur in Jerusalem. And the word that is translated departure there is the word exodus. Luke is extremely clear. And then as the clouds begin to gather, as the leaders of Israel plot Jesus' death, the setting is the Passover. Luke mentions this detail six different times in chapter 22. Five times as the narrator and once upon the lips of Jesus in verse 15. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Just as the first Passover was the inauguration of the exodus out of Egypt, so also this Passover meal celebrated with the disciples will be the inauguration of a new and different exodus accomplished by Christ's death. Whatever Satan 
and Judas and the leaders of Israel believed that they would accomplish through the murder of Jesus, what God would accomplish through it is the victory of God over the power of sin and death over his disciples from all nations. The death of Christ will be the mighty act of God which delivers not only a single nation, but all nations from the power and the fear of death. In his death, Christ is the mighty act of God overcoming that power of sin and death. And Christ is also our lamb, our substitute. But he is a better substitute. Although the Last Supper is a Passover meal, bread and wine are mentioned, but not the lamb. And I believe that this is because Luke means for us to understand Jesus himself as the lamb. In the sacrificial system of Israel, lambs and bulls and goats could never really cover over over the sin or cleanse from sin because the sacrifice does not change the one who is offering it. The action remains external to and outside of the one who's offering it. Because remember, the point, uh, the point of the substitute is that we were unable to offer ourselves in our weakness as we were commanded. And so the substitute is taken in our place. But in Christ, God himself has become incarnate in our common, our shared humanity. And he offers our humanity unblemished through the perfection of his dedicated life to God. And by his spirit, he unites us to himself. He makes us to share in his perfected humanity so that we can be changed. His is a substitution that doesn't keep us any longer at arm's length from God. In Christ, we are really reconciled with God and made capable of offering ourselves to him just as we were commanded to do. And thirdly, Christ is our ransom. In Acts chapter 20, Luke tells us that the church has been purchased with his blood. The church has been bought back from the power of sin and death. It is no longer enslaved to these evil powers, and it has been made capable of a different kind of life, a life of devotion to God and of service to one another. Death has really been conquered in Christ's death. And here's how. When Christ is crucified and he declares that it is finished and he gives up his life and he is laid in a tomb in solidarity with every human being that has ever been lived, behind that silence, the cosmos is being reordered and reconfigured because Christ is defeating death in his death. Hades, Sheol, Death are being transformed and transfigured for all who put their trust in Jesus. Death is losing its finality. It is becoming the gateway to eternal life in the resurrection. (coughs) Excuse me. Death's dominion is no longer complete. It is no longer universal because there is one who has broken through that dominion and who lives forever, the first fruits of the resurrection. A hole has been punched through the brass dome of death's finality and a ray of light shines through to the future in which God's kingdom will be here in its fullness and we will share in a resurrection just like Christ's. And therefore, For all of us who have put our faith in Christ, even though we die, yet we will live forever with him. 
If we believe that and we live that, the whole logic of our lives is utterly transformed. The early church got this. It understood how each of these themes of atonement were entwined together in this Passover meal. And it saw how Jesus fulfilled all of them in his death and resurrection. And how the Eucharist really gives us a taste of the final victory which we will rejoice together with him in in the resurrection. For the early church and still for the Orthodox today, the name for Easter was Pascha, the Passover. And it was to be instituted here on this night. Around the year 190, there was a bishop named Melito in a town called Sardis, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he preached a sermon called Peri Pascha on the Passover. And this sermon breathes the fresh air of Christian hope and the new exodus that Jesus has won for us. It breathes the fresh air of hope in the resurrection. Speaking in the voice of Christ, Here is what Melito says. It is I, says the Christ. I am he who destroys death and triumphs over the enemy and crushes Hades and binds the strong man and bears humanity off to the heavenly heights. It is I, says the Christ. So come all families of people adulterated with sin and receive forgiveness of sins. For I am your freedom. I am the Passover of salvation. I am the lamb slaughtered for you. I am your ransom. I am your life. I am your light. I am your salvation. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I shall raise you up by my right hand. I will lead you to the heights of heaven. And there shall I show you the everlasting father. All of this brilliant theology is packed together into Pascha, the Passover meal, which is our Eucharist, which Christ instituted on this night. How utterly remarkable that Luke takes all of that theology, all of that story, all of that deep reality, and he puts it in a meal. Christianity is totally committed to an intellectual faith to the cognitive grasp of doctrine. A lot depends upon getting the doctrine right. And that's as true of Luke's gospel, which takes a lot of patient study to understand, as it is of the great saints and doctors of the church. We need to know this theology of atonement and the way in which Christ fulfills the Passover by delivering us from the deepest sources of evil. But what Luke is also telling us is that it's not enough to get it all here in your head. Just because you put all of this stuff in your head, that doesn't mean that it's in your heart, that it's in your bones, where it really needs to be in order to change your life. In fact, someone who is cognitively disabled can know this theology on a gut level, on a visceral level, in a way that a PhD in biblical studies completely fails to grasp. In fact, your intellect can be a hindrance if your heart has not been won over by Jesus. Your intellect in that case will just make you more clever and more subtle at sinning. Luke says we need to experience this theology. We need to experience its deep reality in a meal in which this congregation is gathered because we need to know this truth in our bodies. 
I have earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with you, Jesus says, because here's where you're going to know that it's true. And this is why the Eucharist matters. This is why this protracted season is a calamity for us. It's a season in which we need to turn to deep repentance and sorrow and lament. And if we're serious in our devotion to Christ who feeds us in this sacrament, the fact that we can't take it together right now is so very, very painful. This is why only the most dire circumstances could cause us to to suspend our corporate gathering and move to an online virtual format. Only a pandemic of this magnitude and this insidiousness with its astonishing virality and its asymptomatic carriers could cause us to shut our doors. Jesus' triumph over death remains true whether we can celebrate it together in the Eucharist or not. But how will we experience it if we are not fed by him in Holy Communion? Here's how we have to do it. We must take seriously not only the sacrament of the Eucharist, but the sacramental character of our love for one another. Maundy Thursday not only commemorates the institution of the Eucharist, but Christ's new command that we love one another. We cannot gather for the Eucharist right now, but we can go on loving one another with the sacrificial love with which Christ has loved us. It was for this reason, after all, that he delivered us by his mighty hand from death. It was for this reason that he took on our humanity as our lamb, as our substitute. It was for this reason that he paid the ransom that we owe to death. It was so that we could be set free to be little Christs to one another. But don't forget, brothers and sisters, that we've been set free so that we could be family to one another. We are the community of sinners who have been won back from the power of death so that we can make Jesus look beautiful and magnificent and radiant to the world by loving one another. How can we do that this week? We can first and foremost pray. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is the most powerful we have in our arsenal. We can let one another know that we are praying for each other. We can pick up the phone and we can pray in real time on the phone with our brothers and sisters. And we can check in on one another so that no one becomes isolated and alone. And if we're still working, we can meet one another's physical needs while this pandemic has put many people out of work. I just heard today that the unemployment claims have reached 17 million this week. There is so much pain right now. And if the Lord has given us resources, we can get really practical with one another. This is what it would look like to wash one another's feet right now. Let's let the sacramental character of this love for one another be what sustains us when we cannot receive this Eucharist together. And when we are able to meet together again, let's not let this truth fall away. Because that's what the Eucharist is for. It is to make us a people who are capable of communion with Christ and with each other. Amen? Amen.